Where did you get hold of this? My fiance. I see. Oh, what? Yes, I made some cocoa and got engaged. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who The Writer's Room joins us to revisit the first Doctor. Plus, we say goodbye to fourth Doctor writer David Fisher. And hello to a new director for Series 11. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel for January 16th. New director, new director, new director! Yay! And... And she's a woman! Hey, Alyssa, we're starting off with some good news for uh, this week in time travel. Yes, we are adding to the small but mighty group of women directors in Doctor Who. Uh, So much for this stuff remaining uh, secret and hidden until there was a big press rollout because Ruther2 on Twitter discovered and Cultbox reported that Sally, and I hope Sally, I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Aprahaman will direct Blocked 3. Uh, her recent credits include Hetty Feather, The Worst Witch, The Dumping Ground, Wolfblood, Eastenders, Casualty, Lip Service, The Bill. Basically, she's done a lot of British television. She's done a lot. And uh, so she's got a great track record and, and it's great to see. We don't know exactly which episodes she's going to be doing. What's beginning to happen is that creatives agents are adding to their uh, resumes on websites and things like that. And people are just happening to see on their resumes that there's a Doctor Who credit on there. And that's exactly what happened with Sally Aparamian. These little bits and bobs are going to continue to trickle out for us as we approach August. I would like it to become a flood, frankly, but it's going to be accidental until the BBC marketing department decides to just open the floodgates. Fingers crossed that we get a lot more women writers and women directors coming out soon. We still don't know anything about the writer's room, whether there is, in fact, a writer's room. We don't know who's in it. It's frustrating. I want to know. But alas, we're going to be forced to wait. Which is exactly the right thing you want to do if you're the BBC marketing department. Make people impatient. Meh. (laughs) This is my sympathetic face. You can't see it. Not because this is a podcast, but because it does not exist. It does not exist. (laughs) Oh, uh, as we mentioned last week, the new Doctor Who magazine has dropped. And it's got all kinds of good stuff in there. New promo pictures of Jodie Whittaker, including that big... It was sort of shot at the same time as all the initial ones, but the way that uh, she's sort of looking off into the distance, uh, stage left, stage right. I always get that stuff backwards. Anyway, uh, it's a great picture. Lots of detail on the earring. Um, Yep. Jodie Whittaker looks the part. Can we just say she looks the part? She absolutely does. Jewelers, I also expect to see replica copies of the earrings like ASAP. Come on, people. Let's get on this. We've got new merchandise to go with here. I want that earring. She's interviewed. Chris Chibnall, of course, as we mentioned, has the production notes column that you can see in its full glory now. Rachel Talalay's interviewed. The mysterious John Smith. There's a profile piece about the mysterious John Smith, who is that figure who has done such wonderful computer graphics animation stuff just for grins on YouTube and has parlayed that into actual work on actual Doctor Who. And he does truly exceptional work. He did that gorgeous transition between Hartnell and Bradley's face in Twice Upon a Time. And it's just like stunning every single time I watch it. I am an occasional reader of DWM, but this would be, I think, a really good occasion to pick up DWM. Absolutely agree. Finally, some sad news in the last week, uh, the passing of David Fisher, who wrote four episodes of Classic Doctor Who for Tom Baker. I saw tweets from our next guest who talked about what a influential and you know significant writer in Doctor Who's history this was, David Fisher. So we invited him to come and talk about it with us. He's one half of Doctor Who, the Writer's Room podcast, coming to us from sunny Prague in the Czech Republic. <laughs> this is Eric Stadnik. Hi, Eric. Hi. It's not sunny, and uh, I wish I were here under happier circumstances, but I am glad to join nevertheless. Uh, so, Eric, tell us a little bit more about 
how you see David Fisher as being so important and influential on Doctor Who's history. I've definitely loved uh, his episodes that I've seen. Androids of Tara is a particularly fun one for me. But what was sort of his influence on the broader Doctor Who era? I think, you know, you bring up Androids of Tara, which was his second story. I think that's actually a very good one to think about. He... He came in and during the Graham Williams era, he wrote three of his stories for that time. And then the first of the Bidmead era. Um, and he, he sort of was, I won't say the last of, but he was sort of one of the great sort of uh, finds of the 70s when the show would hire people who were writers for other sorts of uh, television shows. David Fisher was a well-established TV writer already and, and other sorts of work. And they would bring them in and sort of see what they could do with Doctor Who. And David Fisher took to it in certain ways like a duck to water. He he brought with him a lightness and a wit and an ability to pastiche other forms and bring them into Doctor Who. That makes his unique style very difficult to pin down because he wrote in so many – essentially all four of his stories have different feels and tones. But in that way, he's sort of one of the archetypal Doctor Who writers – you could, you know, he didn't write as many as other famous Doctor Who writers, and he wrote them in a much shorter span of time, uh, four stories in three seasons. Actually, it would have been five as well, because he did write the initial draft of what became City of Death. But he contributed uh, this sort of idea that you could, and this was obviously a thing that show had done before, but he was so good at taking elements from other genres, horror in Stones of Blood, um, and obviously, you know, just a total ripoff of Pri- Prisoner of Zenda for um, Andrew Zatara, and and bring them into Doctor Who, and really using them to sort of highlight what was great about the Doctor, about the Companion, and about this sort of format generally. Um, and then the 80s came, and a lot of that got lost, and so some of David Fisher's stories are some of the last great uh, shining lights of fun, rompy, energetic Doctor Who in some ways. You and Kyle Anderson on Doctor Who The Writer's Room are very intentional about looking at the script, basically, and trying to block out from your minds everything else about the shows, if you can. When people think about Creature from the Pit, they don't typically think about the script. No. Um, No, which is the change. Yeah. Do Fisher's scripts surpass the production values of the shows that he did it's it's interesting because he his track record with how his scripts are realized for the screen is actually kind of spotty you know obviously with the gamble of time i think or gamble with time which became city of death his script essentially got largely rearranged by uh, douglas adams and graham williams and so who knows what was left of his in there although a lot of the initial ideas about paris and about a person through time and trying to build, gain money. That's all in his original idea. I think Andrew of Tara is exactly what he wanted. I think that's the one, the one you could say most definitely is exactly what he wrote. I think that's the one he's ha- would have been happiest with. And I think he said he was happiest with. Sons of Blood had uh, production issues because of Tom Baker. The same obviously is true of Creature from the Pit. Um, and so I don't think he was always happy with how, the lead actor performed the role. Um, his final story, which is The Leisure Hive, which was the first story in the Bidmead uh, season, is not probably at all what David Fisher had initially imagined with uh, Bidmead's sort of shift away from fun science fantasy romp to hard science slog boredom, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, I know many fan- people are fans of the Bidmead era, but certainly David Fisher's style was not a good match for the Bidmead era, and he never came back after having written The Leisure Hive. So um, he, I, I think he's someone who, if the Graham Williams era or that style had been kept longer, could have written two, three, four more really fun, interesting literary uh, witty stories um and really really secured his legacy as one of the sort of greats of 70s style doctor who unfortunately that's not what happened and especially in the case of something like creature from the pit everything got overshadowed by tom baker's antics on set as it were and the script that he wrote which is actually quite interesting and and has a lot going on in it gets overshadowed and forgotten 
I'd never heard that he was involved with City of Death. And I was wondering what his involvement was with that and what survived of his ideas. But then you answered that one. So yeah, I could I could try to frame it better. Um, so he, you know, he had been brought he, ha- he had not written for the show and he was commissioned to write two scripts for the key to time season season 16, um, both of which went over fairly well. Um, Stones of Blood, I think, is weaker, certainly, than um, Andrew Datara. Um, and then he was commissioned again for season 17 and was actually commissioned to do two. And he essentially what he delivered to the production team for, I think it's a gamble with time, um, was not – I don't know if he was even finished and it just wasn't what they wanted. And Douglas Adams, bless his heart, was not a great script editor in many ways and he was not good at sort of – really focusing and getting people to write what he wanted them to write. And so in the end, he often rewrote many, many things. And most notably, this was when, you know, supposedly Graham Williams locked him in a room for a long weekend to make sure that they had a script to shoot and that became a city of death. But, you know, and we would need to see like all the, all the initial drafts and everything to know exactly who did what. But um, there doesn't seem any dispute that many of the core ideas um, about, I think even the Mona Lisa and things like this, are tied inextricably to David Fisher's script. He had this idea about an alien using, like, I think it was actually Monte Carlo, not Paris, using Monte Carlo as a way of gaining money and, like, gambling and playing with gambling to make money to, like, build the spaceship to, like, a really clever, fun, witty sci-fi idea not too far off from what ended up happening. It's not, like, a page one rewrite, but I think it's certainly so much Douglas Adams' story that we forget the role David Fisher had in sort of setting the stage for what Douglas Adams would build upon. Yeah, you almost never hear about David Fisher's involvement of it. I've been trolling around trying to find out more about writers for ages, and never once did I hear that he was involved with that. And it's such a like quintessential people use it as an introduction to classic Who episode. Yeah, and it's a shame. And who, you know, if he had been if he had written all four ports, I don't think it would have been City of Death. Obviously, City of Death is such a it's it's not a story I adore the way many others do, but it's such a it is a quintessential Doctor Who in some ways, and it is definitely quintessential Douglas Adams Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would have been it would have been significantly different if David Fisher had gone through with his original idea, um, and it wouldn't have had nearly as many great one liners, obviously, no. as City of Death. <laughs> um, but he definitely had a sort of originality of of idea and theme. Um, he didn't just write – usually he didn't just write good aliens and bad aliens or what have you. He actually did something with the format He and he developed characters. And most notably, I just wanted uh, – he wrote women. Mm-hmm. Um, all of his stories have interesting, complicated women, good women, bad women, uh, indeterminate middle morality level women in a fascinating way. He, he credits after the fact that he had – he has his quote. He said he had when he was growing up, he had ants the way other people have mice. They're just constantly everywhere. <laughs> and, and he did not he didn't care for them. Actually, he said I think he said they're all frightful. But he um, he certainly seemed to have an interest and a respect in not just women, but older women, middle aged, elderly women. He wrote them and wrote them well um, and made them interesting characters in a show that very often fails to write women characters at all. And when they do, they're just sort of generic girlfriend love interest types. And David Fisher really pushed back against that. That's one of the things that uh, sort of strikes me is that he brought such humor, such characterization, then that the prominence and importance of female characters in his stories – what kind of alchemy was there between him and Graham Williams that allowed that to happen mm-hmm. and then for it to just sort of go away almost immediately when John Nathan Turner and Christopher Bidmead came in? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a real shame. You know, he, he'd worked with uh, Anthony Reed, who was a script editor uh, with Graham Williams, and then, um, you know, on, on a few stories, technically with, uh, with Douglas Adams. But, the, you know, the, the Williams era is uh, – it succeeds most when it focuses on the kind of story David Fisher wrote best, these sort of science fantasy pastiches, these sort of things that pick up from other genres. Um, he's not doing laser battles. He's not doing those sorts of stories. They don't seem to interest him. Um, instead, he does a lot of character, more character-focused, more thematic, but also with a lot of fun and lightness. 
um, that sort of really typifies the best of the Graham Williams era. You know, when you think of what's good about that era, and a lot of people have trouble thinking what's good about that era. Uh, but when you think about what's good about that era, it's stuff like Androids of Tara. It's fun and it, and it has a sense of humor. Um, and it's never boring and it's just, it plays to its strengths in a way that Fisher was really good at writing. Um, you know, and Bidmead and JNT, when they came in, for season 18, they wanted a, you know, they wanted a clean slate uh, and they completely changed the tone of the show, the focus of the show. It became much more doer, much more hard science fiction, quote unquote, uh, much more focused on these sort of weird technological ideas like tachyonics in the leisure hive. I doubt if David Fisher had even heard of the word tachyonics before Bidmead probably threw it at him in a meeting or sent it to him in a memo or something. And it becomes integral to the functioning of the leisure hive. And it's just not it's not what David Fisher does. It's not his thing. Um, and he went on instead to write a bunch of episodes for Hammer House of Horror, TV anthology show, and, um, you know, was a successful TV writer for a significant period of time after leaving Doctor Who and never writing for it again. He novelized several of his own stories and did a few other things here and there. But um, the show never really came back to the kind of story David Fisher was good at writing. And so he just kind of uh, faded off the sidelines. It does seem to have an impact, though, because those stories really came back in New Who. You see a lot more mm -hmm. of those fantasy science fiction crossovers, particularly with Stephen Moffat does a lot of those and likes bringing in writers to write a lot of those types of stories. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely right. I think I think writers like David Fisher, um, the sort of undersung writers often have had a huge influence on on both RTD and Stephen Moffat um, and what they envisioned who to be. You know, they both very notably turned away from both the sort of grim, violent uh, action adventure of the Sayward era and the hard science fiction of, of the Bidmead era. And they both turned away to some extent from the sort of overly complicated uh, meddling doctor of the Cartmel era. And so the sort of first era in Classic Who, you can see them really taking great swaths of... of feeling and tone from is the Williams era. They, I think they both realized that Doctor Who, whatever the fans say, is a family show. We won't say kids show, but it's a family show. And you want, you want fun and you want hope and you want swashbuckle and you want, you want that in Doctor Who. That, that's what it does well. It's not just, it's not just people shooting people and it's not good. It's not just bad guys and good guys. There's got to be more and there's going to be more entertaining and something that will keep a seven-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 25-year-old and a 45-year-old all entertained simultaneously. And it could be said, and I think it might be true, that the Graham Williams era um, was the last time that happened in classic Doctor Who, maybe. And certainly David Fisher was one of those writers who just typifies that sort of tone. He just, he got it exactly right so often. Um, and and it's really, uh, I think it's really a testament to how strong those scripts are and those stories that indeed you can see sort of his his fingerprints all over uh, much of Modern Who as it came back. So good for him. Mm -hmm. Eric, that is really great. Thank you so much for uh, coming over and talking to us about David Fisher. Uh, side question, just a little bit of a tangent. Is it my understanding that you are a fan of the first Doctor? Uh, that is a correct understanding, and fan might be uh, understatement. I might even stand for the first doctor. Excellent. Will you hang around for a minute while we take care of some business so that we can talk about the first doctor? Happy to. I'll just scooch down the couch. This week on The Incomparable Network. On the flagship podcast, Jason and team resume their trek through the animated works of Hayao Miyazaki with 2001's Spirited Away. On Beginner's Puck, Erica and Deb find plenty to discuss during the NHL bye week, including an epic rant about refereeing and a survey of hockey podcasts with women hosts. And on In the Village, our special TV podcast about The Prisoner, Erica and Steven interview Big Finish Productions' Nicholas Briggs about their rebooted audio series. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. We're back and we're diving into our first theme of 2018, going back and revisiting all of the Doctors. Uh, now, it doesn't feel like going so far back to see the first Doctor since we just saw a version of him in Twice Upon a Time, but we're going to keep going a little bit further back even, past Richard Herndall, and then 
all the way over uh, to uh, William Hartnell, our very first first doctor, uh, and talk about <laughs> why we like him, why we're interested in him, what makes his episodes so fascinating. Uh, so thanks uh, again to Eric Stadnick for sticking around with us and talking with us about the first doctor. Always happy to gush about the first doctor. So let's get into first why you stand for the first doctor. What is it about him that you love so much? Well, I mean, he's clearly the best. Um, <laughs> but but if I cast, if I try to put it in more objective phrasings, uh, there's so many things about the first doctor as written, and especially as William with William Hartnell and the way he portrayed. Is he him. like the platonic ideal of the doctor for you? Well, you know, that's a, it's an interesting question, actually, because platonic ideals are sort of the, the ultimate whatever, but he's certainly the first. He sets the mold. And in, in, in some way, every doctor and actor and, soon, you know, happily now actress who comes after him has to look back and say, okay, what did he do to make the doctor the doctor? Because this is such a crazy idea for a character that, uh, you know, it's really bonkers to be someone who's sort of so voluminous in his possible character traits that he's not easily pigeonholed and defined. And yet there's something essentially doctory. And so much of that, you know, obviously bits were added later on and actors bring their own things to the roles. And that's all very important. But so much of that is laid out by how he's written in those first, you know, three and a half seasons and by how William Hartnell portrays him. This sort of uh, weird movement from angry to funny to sort of bemused that you can never quite predict what his emotional reaction will, to something will be. Um, his his sort of odd sometimes attention to bizarre details that seem irrelevant to everyone else. Uh, his ability to put his hand to anything and come out doing it well. You know, he's not – it's especially important to remember that they hadn't sort of built up these sort of decades of the doctor can do everything – and yet the William Hartner doctor, doctor rarely fails at doing the thing he's trying to do, even if he's never done it before. You know, he entire he learns entire planetary laws in a matter of days so he can try to get William Russell Ian saved in the Keys of Marinus. He learns all about Marinetian law <laughs> um, and, and does the full nine yards. And this is that sort of ability the doctor has to sort of be both uh, quintessentially who he is and yet a chameleon of some kind is what I think William Hartnell really established about the character and how you go about doing that and yet making it believable. Um, that's It's an amazing achievement that the writers pulled it off, that the producer pulled it off, and that the actor pulled it off in such a way that other actors were able to come along and do similar but different things and yet retaining something of the essential essence of who the character is. And so if for no other reason he was the first, he has to be the best, right? <laughs> yeah. That 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 judgment is going to probably get more controversial the further we go through this series. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Chip, you have uh, a bit less experience with the first Doctor. Um, you're still making your way through some of his stories. What are your impressions of him? Because I've been sort of sampling here and there throughout, I don't have a consistent, clear idea of what William Hartnell's doctor is like because, you know, he is so different in so many different times, uh, as Eric said. And that that gives me Peter Capaldi resonances because Capaldi's character changed so much from series eight to series ten. Um there was there was a, there was an arc but there were also moments when he sort of whipsawed inexplicably from uh, from grumpy doctor to funny doctor. I think the thing that fascinates me the most about the first doctor is that he is an enigma, not because the show is trying to build up artificial mystery around him, but because so many of the different writers have such a different idea of who and what the doctor is. And I was wondering, Eric, if you saw a character arc for him or just evolution of the, the kinds of stories that the different writers that were brought in wanted to do oh that's a tough one um i do think there's a i don't think there was a character arc intentional but i think between the actor and the writers and the producers they did they did evolve the character um but we sometimes forget how quickly much of that happened he's he's quite awful in much of his very first story um but by the end of the sort of first 13 episodes uh, by the end of um, Edge of Destruction, this goofy two-parter, he's already generally softened. And he um, he has wonderful lines. Like he says, uh, you know, 
as we learned about each other, so too do we learn about ourselves. And it's this idea, it's the first time the doctors have, the doctor has companions, this idea of the doctor suddenly having humans he has to like interact with every day and not just be with Susan and doing whatever. Um, It really softens him. And even by season two, when Susan leaves, you can see how much the the character has gotten, you know, more emotionally charged and more sort of alive to the the sadness and the joy of being around humans who are sort of, you know, not these cold aliens. Um, and then and so he does over that time that sort of they focus on that just a little bit more and more to the point where by the end of his time sort of you know near the end of it when he's doing things like the war machines he gladly stands up and pulls the first sort of it is defended moment when earth is under invasion or not invasion but is about to be taken over by giant stupid computers um and he stands down the war machine Uh, it's like it's something you would never have seen the doctor from the first few episodes do because he just didn't care and then so what we learn is what we see is we see him learn how to care and what it means to care about humanity in particular um, in a way that's not just about sort of cold, detached reason or self, uh, self-protection self like it often is early on, but more genuinely, and I think Hartnell brings much warmth to those moments, about individual people and about people generally. And that, you know, that never goes away again. That That becomes fundamental to how we understand the character, that even though he's so much smarter and better and cooler and has got a time machine, the Doctor always cares about us. And will always stand up to defend us when the times get difficult. Um, to the point where, you know, his final story, he can say of the Cyberman, love, hate, fear, pride, have you no emotions, sir. Um, and the first one he says, though, is love. And um, and that's just so wonderful that this sort of person who in his first story seemed willing to kill a caveman to save his own skin has become something radically different by the end of his time uh, that, but he's yet still clearly the same character. It's it's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone planned it. I think it just happened that way, fortunately. Yeah. I think for me, I definitely saw that sort of arc taking place up to about the chase. I think I, you know, obviously my impressions of the first Doctor are a little bit colored by the fact that I started with New Who and I had this version of the Doctor in my head already that had gone through so much of this character development. So I was sort of waiting to watch the first Doctor sort of develop into the character that I already knew. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's a very consistent arc, it seems, with him Um particularly when he's paired with Ian and Barbara, that there is a humanizing effect happening. There is, you know, him building relationships with these people. There is conflict, but there is also these people that truly care for each other and are trying to help each other through hard moments. And I think part of the problem is after the chase, really, you know, there's time meddler, but then so much of it is missing that it's hard to see him sort of develop relationships with the other companions. Um, and I haven't yet gone back to listen to uh, the audio versions of those missing episodes. Um, but when you're just trying to go through and watch, you know, all the surviving footage, it's made so difficult by the fact that so many episodes are missing um, that it you lose, I think, some of that consistency um, with being able to watch his character develop. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's not cause it's not just a matter of the writing. It's a matter of how Hartnell plays it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times where you, you don't realize what he's doing until you see him on screen. You realize he's always sort of – he's almost always doing a little bit of business somewhere. I don't know if it's because he didn't like being upstaged or whether he just thought that Doctor should be the most interesting character on screen at all times. But he's often doing you know little facial expressions and reactions or his little <laughs> – all that sort of stuff going on, even if he's not scripted to be doing much of anything. But you're right, you know, Ian and Barbara leave in the chase and sort of he's, – he's clearly devastated by Ian and Barbara leaving. Um, his, he strongly tries to tell them, no, you can't do this. And it's not just because he's worried about them ending up, as he accidentally says, being uh, cinders floating in Spain. Um, he's, he doesn't want them to go because he, he, they're his friends. They're his best friends. And he doesn't, he's already lost his granddaughter. And Vicky's great and he really is very fond of Vicky. 
um, but he there, it won't be the same. And then the, you're right. The story the story is sort of become absent in their uh, memorable in their absence. We don't get to see them, and they keep changing out the companions so often. The production team couldn't quite decide what they wanted. They have Kater, they have Katarina. They kill her before she even really you know gets to establish herself at all. As soon as they brought her on, they knew they were going to kill her. Um, they bring in Dodo at, uh, you know, not much later on. They don't like her. They get rid of her. Rather unceremoniously. You know, tremendously unceremoniously. Um, and then they bring in this sort of swing in 60s idea of Ben and Polly, mm-hmm. who fit, uh, honestly, much better with the Troughton Doctor, I think, in some ways, even though they spend almost as much time with either. And he, he do, you're right, he doesn't have the time to sort of build those connections. He and Steven have a great connection. And I think the actors had a great connection. And I think um, Peter Purvis was the last sort of actor who had Hartnell's back, as it were, and would like make sure that when he dropped a line or got confused or something that he would help him whenever possible. Um, But it's not, it isn't the same. And it's really a shame. I think if we had some of those episodes to see, obviously our evaluation would change somewhat. I don't know whether that would change for the better or the worse, though. Sometimes these things, we assume every lost story is a masterpiece, and then we see it, and we're like, oh, okay, never, maybe not so much. No. Uh, but it would be nice at least to see what he's doing during those moments when he's not talking, or even when he is talking, to see how it changes our perspective on the character and how the character relates to um, the other ones. The first Doctor, for example, is super tactile. He, he's, he's hugging and he's touching, especially the younger women, but also the other people as well. It's a lot of backpacks and like holding and in a way that sort of they dropped after him. It makes me think that it was a thing the character, the actor brought to the role. And it wasn't until later on that it became the doctor's always holding the hand of the companion as they run down the hallway. Um, but that's, that's a super heartfelt thing to be always like touching the other actors in an interesting way. And I, I, I wish I could see him touching the other actors, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's uh, so much of Hartnell's performance is it's not just his voice or anything like that. It's what he's doing in the background. Mm-hmm. It's how he's not just saying a line to a character, but interacting with the character um, and the other actor. Um, you know, it, it's one of those. Y- y- I think we feel the loss of Hartnell episodes, particularly because uh, there is so much happening that you just you you can't hear in the audio. You would have to see it to know how he was playing those uh, those moments. Yeah, I think it's entirely right. Whether he was sort of sticking his chin out as he would do when he was feeling indignant or whether he was sort of looking down over his imaginary glasses or what, you know, because he did that. He had these sort of facial expressions and these postures and whatnot that he kind of went through. Um, and it was more than one on like Pert, Pert we sort of stroking the back of his head or whatever. Yeah. Uh, he had a, he had a lot of different things that he brings uh, physically. And it, it really is a shame. And that's it's one of the reasons why. I don't want to segue if you don't want to, but the other actors, you know, two now official plus, you know, stand-ins here and there have played the first Doctor. And no matter how much they might theoretically look like them or whatever, they're never anywhere near Hartnell because they never get the the things down. They never get it down. They're not even close to getting it down. That is definitely something that I noticed. And also, I wanted to bring up the animated reconstructions. Um, wh- oh, yes. One of the things that annoys me about the animated reconstructions of Hartnell is that they don't really get that type of physicality. Like, they try to to bring it in somewhat. I think Tenth Planet, some of those get close to it, but not really enough. Like, it, it, always, it always seems like he is the most... Uh, this is going to sound really ironic because I'm talking about animation, but he always seems like the most <laughs> flat character on the screen yes. because they're not bringing in that physicality. And yeah, Herndel and uh, Bradley, like they're, you know, I, I feel kind of bad for them because they, they are their own actors and they're trying to do their own interpretation of this role. But there are some things that are so quintessentially the first doctor. Like if someone, if they brought in a new actor to play Pertwee, like if they brought, you know, Sean Pertwee in to, to play him now, like if he didn't rub the back of his neck when he was thinking over something, I'd just be like, this is not the third doctor. I'm done. I'm out. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's if if you tried to recast the fourth doctor and he didn't like sort of boggle his eyes, you know, like there are things we associate because the doctors aren't just what's written on the page. It's the amalgam of what's written on the page and what the actor brings, plus directors and everything else, costumers, all that sort of stuff. And you can cast someone who kind of looks the right, the same age or looks right and you can put him in the right suit or whatever. And they didn't really do that with the five doctors. Like Herndel looks nothing like Art Nolan in almost any way. Um, but you can't. 
you can't recreate all those things that make us recognize which doctor is which. Because often dialogue could be swapped pretty readily between the doctors. Oh, yeah. that many people who write the doctor will say, you actually just write the doctor. And then the actor brings sort of which doctor it is to the role in some ways. Um, but so, uh, yeah, yeah, the animation that kind of – he just always looks the same. And I'm like, that's not that. That's not what that doctor's like. Right. Um, the animation works, I think, much better with Troughton because Troughton so much of it is sort of the hangdog face. And they get that sort of immediately and sort of you can kind of believe it. But, yeah, every sort of attempt to capture what Hartnell was doing on screen, uh, whether by recasting him or animating him, it just, yeah, it falls flat to some way. At best, it feels like, I would say at best, it feels like a weird alternate version, which I think is how Herndl feels to me. Mm -hmm. He's like an alternate version of the first Doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at worst, Bradley, to me, it just feels like someone doing a bad impression at times. Oh, or I, I want I yeah I don't want to, and I don't want to slag him off like he's you're right he's doing his own thing and he's written to do his own thing, um, but he's not he's not recognizable to me at all as the first Doctor. So um, that transitions kind of interestingly into the the thing we wanted to discuss next because that's you know, the reason I acted surprised is because that's the first like genuinely like you know. I'm not entirely sure I liked this reaction that I've seen about <laughs> Bradley in Twice Upon a Time. Um, so what do what do you how do you both feel about the sort of reinterpretations that have been made of the first doctor in Five Doctors and Twice Upon a Time, like beyond just the, the physicality of the actor and making him making those actors feel like the first doctor again? They the character themselves has been themselves uh pronouns are hard uh the character's been yeah. reinterpreted um as well uh in each version as new writers not really from that era have come in and provided their own spin on it yeah i was thinking about as we were talking about david bradley and richard herndall i was also thinking about some of the books that i've read uh the multi-doctor mm -hmm. books uh comics like uh the one that uh tony lee did for the 10th doctor that went back and did uh, many stories about each successive doctor uh, and things like that, where there are so many first doctors from 1963 to 1966, you know, uh, that <laughs> that people who are reinterpreting the first doctor, they've got a lot to choose from. And so I'm not just I'm, I'm not really bothered by how off Herndl or Bradley are, because Going back from the beginning of the conversation when we talked about what a chameleon the first Doctor is, there's ample reason to get it wrong because you can be focusing on one piece or another. I think that there is a dominant interpretation of the first Doctor as the grumpy old man, and everything after that is individual spin that is more or less off. But I think that so many people trying to reinterpret the first Doctor just can't see past grumpy old man. Yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that's wrong. I also wouldn't say Grumpy Old Man is entirely inaccurate as a capturing of the first Doctor in some ways. Um, energetic Grumpy Old Man, certainly. Um, often he's actually much more energetic than we give him credit for on many of those scenes. He has more fighting and things than we remember. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know to look at to look at Herndell and the Five Doctors. You know, Terrence Sticks was as close as you were going to get to somebody who's written every Doctor on screen. You know, or or for books or things. I mean, he's he he wrote so many and he was so, you know, he probably would have seen at least some of the show when it went out. He would have seen Hartnell um, and not as a child either, as an adult. So, you know, and he came in just a year and a half after Hartnell left. So I think he would have had at least some understanding of what the character was supposed to be like and what had originally been portrayed. And so I think even though it's not played the same as Hartnell would have played it, I think as written, the first Doctor in The Five Doctors is actually pretty similar um, and let's not even talk about the three doctors, which is just tremendously sad to see such a diminished, physically diminished Hartnell stuck on a view screen. It's just depressing as all hell. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and then Herndl does his own things. But there are moments in the five doctors that even though you can never imagine William Hartnell doing them the same way, do seem really first doctory in an interesting way. Uh, like, I love the fact that he yells at Tegan to stop calling me Doc. <laughs> I think I, I think that's great. I think that's just really great. It just it seems right. It seems like what would happen when these two really tetchy characters met each other? And it was like they would kinda like each other, but kind of really not like each other. And it was I thought that was very charming and fun. 
Um, and I like the fact that it's often the first doctor who has the sort of way of solving the problem, even though he's theoretically the least experienced at all this saving the universe business. Um, but I think Bradley is the big question mark. And we, I, you know, it's just it's so recent. So I think you know, there's a certain amount of we'll have better sense of how it all fits in over time and how we think well over time. I, I guess I just feel that he actually wasn't grumpy. He wasn't that grumpy at all. He was more... He was more just sexist, which not that the Hartnell doctor isn't sexist, but he's much less noticeably recurrent sexist, I think, in in his actual stories. Yeah. It made it sound like he just walks around being sexist all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And that's just not right. It was one of those, like, you know, I could pull out, like, of those moments, a lot of which were just directly ripped from previous Hartnell Mm -hmm. stories, but to kind of get the worst of the Hartnell era repeatedly thrown in your face over one hour long, 45 minute episode, like that's, it was a lot. Like it, it, I think one of the things that uh, I'm always kind of interested by is, um, you know, that that's something that they pull out of the character to bring up every single time. You know, you have in The Five Doctors, the first Doctor sort of demanding that Tegan go and make them tea, and she's just horribly offended by it all. Um, And Twice Upon a Time was, I mean, one line probably wouldn't have been amiss, two lines maybe even, just because that's to who he was. And I kind of, you know, agree with Moffat's reasoning that it would have felt wrong to ignore that, um, particularly in light of, you know, where we are at this cultural moment and what was about to happen. But it kind of just felt overwhelming after a point of just like, he wasn't like this, like 24 seven all the time. This was like the worst of it when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, quite frankly, makes little to no sense uh, in some ways, you know, it's one thing they wrote it in the 60s because they didn't know they didn't know where he was from. They didn't know why he'd left. They didn't know what life was like on his planet. We never find out during his entire time. Um, and, and so, you know, they can kind of assume that he comes from some planet where sexism is alive and well, you know. By the time he comes back as, you know, in, in Twice Upon a Time and David Bradley's playing him, it's like the show has established so much more about how gender and sexuality and sex uh, and personal identity and all those sorts of things are understood by Gallifreyans. Yeah. That to have this idea that the guy who's closest to having lived on Gallifrey, uh, you know, left not that long ago, relatively speaking, is super duper sexist. And maybe that's why he left. He's like, I can't handle this genderless society. I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, um, it, it felt, it felt forced. I, I was like, yeah, you could bring the first doctor back and have him make one sort of offhand comment, but not in the sense of like, you know, but to do it that often in the context of a story where the doctor himself is about to become herself. Yeah. Where the doctor has made it clear that, you know, life on Gallifrey is not struck by these gender norms that everyone else is bothered by. It's like, well, why is, why is he constantly making all these jokes about women, like, or saying all these things about women that are really offensive? Like, eh. that's a that's a, it's sort of a statement of that's a sort of a statement about old television and about old fandom made at the at the expense of, for one of a better word, canon. Yeah, it's made flesh. Yeah. It's it's sort of it's sort of what the worst the worst idea of old fans and old who incarnated. And unfortunately, the first doctor is the incarnation they they chose, even though, you know, you could argue that the third doctor is every bit as sexist as the first doctor is. Um, the second doctor is the one who, you know, also has things about Polly making the coffee and, and the moon base. No, mm-hmm. it's not, they don't really get it right for a long time, if they ever do. And yeah, so I, I feel bad that like this doctor, who's so great in so many ways, when new fans see Twice Upon a Time, they think, oh, he's the old sexist one. Yeah. Like, that's that's unfair. I think back to the conversation about, you know, the actor bringing so much to the role. Um, I heard once, I don't know if it's entirely true, but I heard that in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, Hartnell uh, improvised the line about giving Susan a smacked bottom uh, for <laughs> what had been going on. Like, ironically, as much as like that kind of infuriates me, that was the line that made the most sense in Twice Upon a Time, because that's what the actor brought to the role. Like that was Mm -hmm. Hartnell's own particular biases and opinions about women in his life that he brought to the first doctor. Like, you know, the whole the doctor would be befuddled by lesbians thing was like 
I'll admit it, I laughed because that was like my dearest thing ever to be able to do that to somebody in my lifetime. But like, it didn't really make sense for the doctor that the doctor would be befuddled by lesbians. Um, but that, you know, that made the most sense because that was, you know, what Hartnell brought to his doctor, a sense of sort of, uh, patronizing patriarchal authority uh, towards uh, the women that he was around. And I should say that was only very occasional. I think one of the things that I find that's difficult about the reinterpretations is that Hartnell did bring a lot of warmth to his relationships with the companions and the actresses that he worked with. Um, And it's hard to bring into any of the reinterpretations because it's not him. It's not Hartnell. And they also rarely give him time to work with any of the companions and build any sort of relationship that can show, yeah, you know, he's he's patronizing and he can be, you know, not great about women a lot of the times, but he also does in many cases want to build warm relationships with people just sometimes takes him a while to get there. And we lose that. Yeah. Yeah. No, we tell you, I think it's entirely right. He's, he's slow to warm up um, often because even with Dodo by the end, he's quite warm with her. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say this for the record, the the smack bottom thing. Yeah, totally. Susan is also his granddaughter. Yeah. You know, we should, let's not forget that. Like it's, it's, he's not saying that to Vicky. No. And he and Vicky have a different relationship, still very sort of grandfatherly, but different. He would I don't think he ever would have said that to Vicky. Because it's a Susan because it's his granddaughter and he's sort of pe- getting fed up with her at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, still not cool. Not, you know, I no mean, it's funny, children. but it's not it's not a friend. No smacking children of any kind. No smacking bottoms on teenage girls like all that. You know, yeah. whatever. Taken as red. But it's I think people often forget sort of. There's more than just sexism that play there. There's also ageism. <laughs> yeah. And sort of just the grandfather knows best sort of it all. Um, but he, ne- he never, he never speaks that way to Barbara. No. He never speaks, you know, it's, it's, it's not this sort of inveterate. And I don't, I don't, I sound like I'm just harping at it, but it's really bothersome to me that that's, that's how the character was done. In other respects, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I thought Bradley's portrayal was fine, but so much of his limited screen time, was about him being flabbergasted by Bill's lesbianism or, you know, saying uh, sexually charged things or, or you know, or, or, or sexist things. Sort of like, uh, he can do other stuff. He can do other stuff. And and it's, um, and it left me wondering, I'm like, if you're going to bring him back and distort him so much, why did you bring him back? What did he actually give the story? And I'm not entirely sure I've answered that question for myself. So that's that's where I am with regard to that right now. Words to ponder on. So we are going <laughs> to wrap up here real quick. But before we do, we're going to do a flash round of our favorite episodes and the episode that you would get a new viewer into William Hartnell's era of Doctor Who. Um, so we're, we, we've mm. talked enough about the, the later versions of Hartnell. We're just going to focus on his main block of episodes here. Um, so flash round favorite episode. Eric, you start. Ah, uh, so many good ones. Um, just because it's the, I think the obvious choice. I'm going to say the Aztecs. Nice. Um, the sixth story, um, and, or sorry, the fourth story? Six, six. And it's, um, I mean, he gives it, you know, all the characters are great. Susan is sort of the one who gets shafted in that story. Um, but everyone else is amazing and he's fantastic and he has this wonderful romance with this, middle-aged Aztec woman <laughs> who, uh, he accidentally proposes to by giving her hot chocolate. Uh, and, and at the end, and she gives him this piece of jewelry, and at the end, he leaves it behind, and then he goes back out and he keeps it. And I like to think that, you know, Jodie Whittaker somewhere in a locker somewhere has the piece of jewelry that Kameka, her Aztec wife, gave her. It's, it's beautiful, and it's sweet, and it's wonderful, and he's fantastic in it. And the story as a whole is really gripping anyway. Good old uh, Doctor Who does sort of high Shakespearean tragedy with Barbara as the lead. <laughs> fantastic story. Eric, you stole mine, so... Um... <laughs> So uh, I will say that, to my surprise, uh, the first two episodes of uh, The Tenth Planet, which we just recently mm. rewatched, uh, he is very strong in those first two episodes. Yes, he is. Uh, yeah, he is. I am going to go out and say Dalek Invasion of Earth. Um, Whoa. And I, I think it's... It's such an interesting episode to me. It's also the first companion departure um, that I like full out sobbed at. (laughs) And so I uh, really that that story has a special place in my heart. Edge of Destruction, close second. 
Uh, all right. So best episode that you would start a new fan to Hartnell's era on. Eric, go. Um, it's maybe a weird choice, but I say the time meddler. Um, I think it's it's a really wonderful, uh, lightly comic story with some dark rape that happens off screen, unfortunately. Um, but it's it's fun, it's engaging, and it's one of the first stories that really starts to build the mythology of the Doctor's past and things. And and all the actors really do a great job. And it's 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 the first time we get what would be considered a non-peer historical, these sort of time travel inflected historicals. And so I think it's much closer to Modern Who than a lot of his other historical stories are. Um, and so I think the time meddler is a good place to start. Chip? I'll be dull and say an unearthly child. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not only is it such a great story, period. Um, and, I, and I am talking about episode one, not about episodes one through four. But it's a good performance by Hartnell. And the doctor is given this air of mystery and danger that i think it's it's a it's a good foundation from which to discover all of the different shades of the character i am probably going to go with the war machines um since you both Mm. took episodes that i would have picked first (laughs) (laughs) but uh if all of those options are gone i think war machines is him at a very interesting point um where he's a little bit closer to um the doctor that we would get to know you know for the new series so uh if i'm taking a new series fan back and trying to get them into hartnell's doctor i think i'd start with something uh, a little close to home for them so war machines would be my pick all great options, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for joining us uh, to talk about the first Doctor today. Thank you. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at DR Who This Week. Chip is on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord, and I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And you can find Eric on Twitter at SJC Austinite. And yeah, we're on Facebook too. This Week in Time Travel is hosted on the Incomparable Network. You can support our show by becoming a member. You can support us, any other shows on the Incomparable, by ticking the appropriate boxes at theincomparable.com slash members. Thank you so much. Thank you to Christopher Breen for our music, to David J. Lore for our art. And we will come back to you next week to talk about the second Doctor on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.